Welcome to Trending in Education. This is Mike Palmer. I'm excited to have a panel here today where I have two guests, not just one. I have two guests with me. I have Dr. Jen Farthing, who is the Senior Vice President of Learning Product at SAI360. I also have Jan Staley with me, who's been running a consulting practice for many years. She's now doing a lot of work out of UPenn's positive psychology program. We're going to get into all of that and more. We're going to be talking about how to talk to leaders about learning, how we all need to be leaders in our own ways, and how we have to focus on well-being, sense-making, all the good things. We'll get into that in a minute. Before we do that, let me welcome each of you to the show. Jan and Jen, welcome to Trending in Education. Thank you, Michael. Appreciate that. Hello, Mike. Thanks for having me. Excellent. We always like to begin as our rite of initiation. We love to hear our guests in their own words, tell us how they got to this point in their professional lives. Let's start with you, Jan, and then we'll pick up with you, Jen. What got you to this point in your career? Thanks, Michael. I originally trained as an engineer, believe it or not, way back when, and was proud of that, was a successful female engineer at a time when there weren't too many. But through project management training and other facilitation skills, I was able to acquire people-related projects and really found that that was my passion and that was my love. And I started my first consulting business, really looking at how to bring people together, how to help them succeed in groups. I did a lot of training of facilitators, thousands of facilitators trained over a course of about 10 years, maybe. And our goal was always to look for ways that we could extend upward work at the grassroots with facilitators, but also with leaders throughout all the different levels of leadership. And then also geographically so that we'd work beyond our kind of home community and look more globally. And even in the 90s, we were very successful at doing that. I was hired into an organization and became a director of learning and development of learning systems at a time when technology was really being infused in our learning solutions, and then went on to be the director of leadership development, which was providing really fun programming, formal education, as you might guess, but also immersive activities and relationship type development for leaders. Mm-hmm. At about that time, I went back to school. And as you mentioned with UPenn, I went and got a master's degree in applied positive psychology, which is the science of well-being, and really started to look at how can we create not only flourishing individuals, but flourishing organizations and specifically cultures that flourish within big, large global organizations. And I've been doing it ever since. So that was about 12 years ago and working with many of the name brand types of organizations that you would recognize, helping them really craft those work cultures that are supportive, that enhance well-being, that promote mattering among individuals, all of those things. Mm -hmm. And a lot of those things have become more top of mind in the last few years. We are going to talk about the term that none of us like quiet quitting and some of the more negative frames. That's why it's wonderful to have you here with us, Jan, to talk about some of the positive framing that can also happen where generally we do need some new language and well-being is one of the terms that I think we'll want to dig a little bit further into as well as some of the other things you said. And then Jen, how about you? What got you to this point in your career? 
Well, all the things, Mike. And I think I would like to start by saying I've had the pleasure to work at companies with both Mike and Jan Mm -hmm. uh, since the turn of the last century. But I started my career in publishing. And when I met Mike, I was pretty well established doing that and working behind the scenes as an editor. And then as editorial started to go digital, so did I. And the next thing I knew, I found myself in a learning organization, not a publishing house. And I was able to bridge both of those areas as kind of that interim technology called the CD-ROM fell out of favor. I got to know Mike and his group. And I don't know, did we invent the first Gamify nerdy learning experience? We may have. Sure. (laughs) And then as I continued on my journey, I went into higher education where I focused on nursing curriculum and helped nursing students who are often women, often career changers, get from point A to point B. And when I look back on all that time, I think of all the choices I made in publishing, doing educational publishing, really helping move people forward tactically. What do you need? What is your barrier of entry and how can I move you forward? So that was in my DNA. And then I wanted to expand out of that and having launched a really successful digital homework project for nurses in nursing school, I went on to corporate consulting and into ethics and compliance learning where I met Jan. So again, you know, how do you help people do the right thing? How do you help people be better? How do you make the organization as well as the humans in it flourish and thrive? They're all interconnected. And like Jan, I got the education bug. I was working with instructional designers in higher ed, and I thought, hmm, how is that different from all the other publishing cast of characters that I've come to know? And what makes it, you know, what makes it successful? So I became an instructional designer. Next thing I knew, I was footsteps away from a master's in education, and I was an English major before with a master's in English. So I thought, let me be a little bit more functional. So I got the Master of Science of Education, and then I didn't stop there. I went on to just complete my doctorate while I've been working full-time at Vanderbilt's Peabody College of Education. And the program that I'm in, I was part of one of the first cohorts for leadership and learning in organizations. Mm. So for me, not only do we graduate with a capstone project, but for me, it was a capstone of all the things that I've been doing. How do I bring that together? All of my passions for successful workplace engagement, successful product development, people being happy and successful at work, finding a place where they can flourish and thrive. So the things that I had been working toward kind of all along, they really started to come together. And now a few months after graduation, I feel like I finally have a chance to think about that all in this context, post-pandemic, leading a huge team at work and really bringing all the things that we do for our product in our workplace full circle with how we care for ourselves at work. So yeah, I think those are some of the things. That's a lot. And all of that, all of what you both just described is brought to bear on this conversation. We're going to dig in a little more now into maybe how things have changed. And uh, I think I'd like to start with you, Jan, just because you've been in the space for a long time, you know, we're a trend spotting show. There've been a few waves of 
learning and development and culture building and almost like Maslowian awareness that has infused our thinking about organizational culture, leadership development, and some of the things that you've been working on. Can you describe some of those trends and what it's been like culminating in where we are today? Absolutely. So when I first started doing consulting work with leaders and organizations, the focus was absolutely no variance from productivity, performance, bottom line. And if you tried to bring forward something like well-being or engagement, those sorts of things, it just wasn't going to fly. So that would have been, say, in the 90s and getting into the early 2000s. And then came the advent of the employee engagement survey. And along with it came kind of 360 performance reviews. And our expectations for leaders at that point became higher. Leaders were expected to be more well-rounded. And instead of only focused on the bottom line, of course, they still have to have performance within their functional area. But they also were challenged to look at how they were getting those bottom line results. And employees in, in engagement surveys and culture services were telling them how well they were doing or not doing through those mechanisms. When that kind of broadened approach to leadership happened, it was still really firmly anchored in the bottom line. So in other words, we want engaged employees because engaged employees will work longer, they'll work harder, they'll give that extra amount of effort that might be needed to push a product out the door or whatever their business model was. Now what we're seeing, and we started to see it before the pandemic, and then it really blossomed during the pandemic, which is a true understanding of the needs of well-being that have to happen for employees within organizations. Mm -hmm. And one of the, you know, negative indicators is burnout. So if that well-being isn't being tended, burnout can be one of the negative affects. Employee churn, so inability to retain good employees throughout their work lives. Mm -hmm. And so uh, we're just at the beginning of that shift where organizations are taking well-being more seriously. And when I say well-being, I should say for years, there might have been wellness programs, which would have been like a discount at a fitness facility or lunchtime yoga classes, those sorts of things, mm. which can be helpful. So I don't want to discount them. Well-being is a little bit broader and more strategic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great run through. And it does get me to one of my triggering words nowadays, which is quiet quitting. Between quiet quitting and learning loss as a podcaster talking about the future of education, I think it's raising my blood pressure at least five to 10 points. So I got to I'll, I'll learn how to embrace my well-being after this conversation. But Jen, as someone who's been looking at this from a few different angles, you even shared Paul Krugman, New York Times article about mapping GDP to number of quits. And uh, there's a lot going on. Who who really knows what's going on? But uh, But I'd love to get a little bit of your perspective, because it does seem like as much as I might not like the language... There is a bit of the awakening that Jan is talking about when people are talking about quiet quitting. And I'd love to hear a little bit of your mm -hmm. perspective on that. Yeah. And talk about triggering because I can't stop learning things. I did also do that yoga certification. So when people say, you know, you seem stressed out, don't you go to yoga? It's like, yes, I do. And do you yeah. want to see me when I don't do yoga? No, 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 thank you. 
and yoga is more stressful when you're the instructor too. So it's like, you know, like it's easier to just go yeah. to a class, but you're then, you know. Or, you know, I'm happy and I frequently like, yeah, let's start with a little quieting breath. Let's start with a cooling breath. I think those things do really work in the moment yeah. or just the old fashioned, hey, count to 10 if you're angry or if you're frustrated, right? So how do we jolt someone into, hey, it's going to be all right. We're not going to say quiet quitting five times fast to Mike. So although yoga can help, and I didn't get to yoga this morning, and I've still managed to show up to the podcast, you know, it, it's not the answer. And it, it goes to that there's not one answer. There's also not one cause or one catalyst or one correlation to what we see here. Mm -hmm. Mike and I were joking about being Gen Xers with this slacker reputation that we don't subscribe to. So have people been quiet quitting all along? Absolutely. But we just didn't have a cool word for it or phrase. But it's it's more about treating symptoms and not the cause a little bit. So this notion of burnout, right? We're seeing all the great articles over the past year that is finally saying it's a systemic issue. It's not a personal shortcoming if you feel burnt out at work. And when I read the Krugman article earlier this week that had to do with the jobs report, it was interesting to me because I've experienced this throughout the pandemic. We've had a lot of the great resignation we've heard about. Mm -hmm. Can we stop talking about that now? Things are tightening up. And what does that mean for the economy? Are we, aren't we recession wise? Well, I don't want to talk about that because I'm not an economist, but the interesting piece of this that we see at work. Well, first of all, anyone know a recruiter out there? We're all burnt out. So are the recruiters. <laughs> but when we're in between things, right, when someone has left the organization and we're all focused on hiring the next great person to join our team, what's happening in that in between time? What's happening is you've got this extra activity that people like me, actually, I love looking at resumes and finding somebody like speed dating. It takes a lot of time. And when you do it mindfully, thoughtfully, when you think about rounding out your team and how much business case, what kind of investment that is for the organization, the cost of a bad hire, all of those things, it's loaded. Mm -hmm. So new managers, a lot of us have been recruiting up through the ranks. Well, okay, so we lost a couple of people. Can this one get a chance? So some people are going to look back on these times and say, wow, the great resignation afforded me an opportunity that maybe I would have had to stand in line for. And as women, we're also very cognizant of all the women who've been negatively impacted over the past few years, whether it's child care, equity, pay, all of the different things, mm -hmm. you know, doing women's work at the office, unequal sharing of housework at home, all of the things that make it really hard sometimes for women to show up at work and flourish in their careers mm -hmm. at Gale. Yeah. So what tends to happen, males and females and everybody, all of us at work, let's not gender size anybody. We pitch in more. We have to find those replacements. It takes time. It takes investment. And then we have to train them. You know, we have a situation now where we found a really great person. And now it's like, oh my goodness, we all have to carve out some time to onboard and right. get to know somebody and embrace them in our workplace culture and our ways. So getting back to the Krugman, one of the things that I took away from that was that when we think about productivity as an indicator of what's going on with the economy, onboarding, offboarding, intermediary boarding, pitching in, 
the things that we have to do that I guess I would call it job absorption that mm. can be sometimes long-term. Hey, Jen Farthing's been doing that. Why do we need to replace her, that person with anybody? Someone will just absorb it into their jobs. That's where productivity may be languishing, right? Oh, and languishing. Let's sidebar for that one. Right. The notion of languishing and isolation. So all of this to say is that some of us feel like we're that duck on the surface of the water that looks so serene and we're paddling fast and furiously underneath because we're wearing all those hats, either temporarily or possibly that's part of our new job description. So that has an impact on what those productivity figures look like. And it it kind of speaks to that phenomenon of it, in a lot of our cases where we're not leaving our homes and we're still working, like, why do I feel like I have less time than I ever had? I'm not commuting. I'm not even changing conference rooms. I'm not going to the kitchen and making right. coffee. Why, why can't I cope? Right. So right, right. I, I think Jan may know some of those answers. Yeah, for sure. And I think it also does speak to the reality that it does take the whole culture to thrive, the whole culture to flourish. When you lose a star, there were quits. There were a lot of people did shift jobs over the last two to three years, but it looks like that's slowing down. And then the productivity hit is more that we're just trying to assimilate folks and sort of reform as hopefully a thriving culture. And that's where we did also want to talk about what the Surgeon General had released. Jan, you brought this to our attention. Five essentials for workplace mental health and well-being, you know, I mentioned Maslow a little bit earlier, the whole idea of a hierarchy of needs, where if you're not focused on the well-being and the mental health of your employees at a foundational level, it's very difficult to implement anything on top of that. And there's a really interesting framework here that you shared with us. Can you talk a little bit about how to build that flourishing culture? And maybe we can touch a little bit on what the Surgeon General has shared. Absolutely. So I love that this Essentials of Workplace Wellbeing came out. I think it's fantastic. And it again, it supports that trend. Organizations are looking at this more seriously than they had before. And, you know, look, our lives are larger than our jobs. And so the awakening that's happening for organizations, for leaders, is we have to figure out how to have people engaged in their work but supported, being supported while they're doing it. And so those five essentials are the first one is protection. So do people feel safe and secure, whether they're at their workplace, whether they're working from home. And one of the elements that is embedded in that would be psychological safety as well. Mm -hmm. And do people feel like it's okay to raise their voice, not raise their voice like shout, but to be able to share their ideas, their opinions in a way that they're not going to be punished for. So that protection, safety, and security is one of the key elements. Mm -hmm. Another one is connection. And those are things like social support and belonging. So when I was listening to you, Jen, talk about the kind of quiet quitting and why it might be happening, one of the things that we can think about is, are people feeling that sense of belonging? Are they feeling like they're a part of something, part of a community, and we're working together, even if we're not physically together, we're still working together as a team to create something really cool in the world. Mm -hmm. So that's that connection. Work-life harmony, I talked a little bit about that, that deep understanding that our work is just one aspect of our lives. And sure, it's an important one. And for many of us, we spend 
you know, as much or more hours at work than we maybe do in other priority areas of our life, but it is just one aspect. And so how can leaders, how can organizations create that effective work-life harmony? Work-life balance is kind of out of vogue these days because really it's <laughs> how can you balance those yeah. very important priorities in your life? So we're looking at the term harmony. Mm -hmm. And I would say this one also relates to the quiet quitting in the sense that some of the contributing factors are autonomy, flexibility, those sorts of things. And when you think about it from a leader's perspective and you've got all these employees, maybe some work on site, some work in a hybrid, some work fully remotely, how do you help them achieve this work life? And there's a great theory by two researchers called Desi and Ryan, D-E-C-I and Ryan, that's called self-determination theory. And it's a theory of motivation that says if individuals feel they have autonomy, they have some flexibility in their work arrangements, they are competent. In other words, they have some self-efficacy. They feel that they can do the job given the conditions. Yeah. And then that relatedness factor, which ties back to our connection and it ties into the fourth element, which is that of mattering at work. And this is probably my favorite concept and something that I talk with leaders a lot about these days, which is mattering at work. And so self-determination says if we feel autonomy and flexibility, if we feel self-efficacy and competence, and if we feel we matter, if we feel connected to something larger than ourselves, that's going to turn out well in terms of employee motivation. <laughs> Mattering at work, I'm just going to take a second and say there's a professor at the University of Miami named Isaac Prilitensky, and he has boiled down mattering to two elements that I think are just absolutely fantastic. Mattering to him in his description says you feel valued and you're able to make a valuable contribution. In other words, someone cares if you don't show up at work, right? Someone cares if you have a sick kid during the night. You feel valued by your manager, your peers, your organization, and you feel like you're able to actually contribute to the greater good, whatever organization you're in, whatever their mission and purpose is. So that's mattering at work. And then finally, the last one, our maybe rally cry is learning or growth on the job, learning and development. And so a couple of the, the things that are interesting about that now is because we are experiencing changes in the workplace, not just from, you know, where we go to work, but also the nature of the work that we do, looking at retooling, coming up with ways to help people adjust to all of those changes is part of that learning and growth. Another one that I'm working with one client on very intensely right now is learning in place. So it's an organization that does amazing global work, and they're kind of a flat structure. People are highly engaged. They love the meaning and purpose of what they're doing, and we still have to provide them opportunities for growth. And so the term we're using is growth in place. Mm. That's interesting. There's a lot in what you just unpacked there, and we'll share a link to this. It's a nice graphic. If you get a chance, go to the show notes for this episode. If you have the affordance of your eyes, don't do this if you're driving. But if you have an opportunity to look at the graphic, it's kind of nice. It looks like it would fit wonderfully into a PowerPoint deck if you were trying to describe what's going on. Jen, you did mention as we were getting ready for the show that you wanted to make sure we weren't just up in the clouds, that we we're actually able to turn 
some of this into more really actionable tips and messages for folks out there. Everyone is a leader in a flourishing organization, regardless of where you are. But if you do have more influence and you are sort of setting the vision and the strategy and the mission, those folks need help too. Any thoughts in terms of some ways to turn some of the more theoretical stuff into stuff that folks can actually take action against? Yeah. And I think that bias toward action is really important for any leader, any everyday aspiring leader, right? Let's think about that opportunity for growth. If you see that nobody is raising their hand for that, why not you? You're just as worthy because you listen to all those great tips that we're going to tell you and what Jan has framed for us. So that sense of mattering, you matter. And how do you help others matter? How do you help lift all the voices when you speak up. If you have psychological safety at work, that means it could be your turn to take a small risk and say what you think and what you think could be helpful. It also reminds me from an instructional design approach when Jan was speaking about mattering. A lot of those tenets have to do with what form the Kirkpatrick model of adult learning, giving the autonomy and motivation because adults don't often like to be told what to do. And that's part of this too. How can I have some flexibility in my day? So mm -hmm. as a leader, when you can afford the flexibility, my team all works remote. And I had a mom say, you know, when my kid comes home, my kid is still feeling really burnt out. Can I start early and end at 345? And I said, yes, you can. This is one of my superstars. It would be silly of me if you have an office like I do. Not everybody does. Some people have to be at certain locations at certain times. But for me, it's like, what's stopping me from that if I don't think of it myself? And also, if, if you can't do something for somebody, instead of no, sorry, how about the yes and? Well, Yes, I see the, how that's important to you. And we have some challenges with people being here until X o'clock. How about, or what if, or why don't we? Or let's open this up to discussion. Maybe we can all pitch in. The person who's not a morning person, for instance, might be a player here. So think about what people are saying. And maybe you work for an organization where there are a lot of rules as opposed to norms, or maybe those norms are deeply entrenched. So you feel like you can't violate them. I say, why not ask? So if you're a leader, you may have a little bit more referent power at work or official power. So use it. Speaking up for others is part of how we all can be great allies at work for any issue. One of the things that I've done, because we're on Teams a lot, or a lot of you may be on Zoom if you're if you're not co-located. So sometimes it feels like we go from meeting to meeting every 15 minutes or half hour or hour. And what if someone has a question? They might not see you in the hallway or the coffee machine or whatnot. So how do you interject politely, not disruptively, but you might have an urgency and someone's just not around. We've instituted some vocabulary. I love a good book club. And I brought some of the things that I studied at Vanderbilt to some lunch and learns at my organization and fostering a shared vocabulary is really handy. Some of it is a little jokey and fun. And I think there's a lot of place for humor at work, but some of it is let's take a principle and talk about it. So two of my favorite ones, one is sense making. So we talked about sense making and how a duty of a leader is to provide sense for people. Sometimes during the pandemic, times of great change, we have to do some sense breaking. Let's stop doing it the way we've always done it because it's no longer serving. Who's going to sign up for that activity? And what we came away from is the notion of a sense check. Maybe someone feels funny about just negativity around asking questions from somewhere in their background. 
So we say, hey, sense check. And that just means, hey, I need 30 seconds. I want you to sense check this before I send the email. And someone can be heard, someone can be helped, and also we can all go about our business. So foster that shared vocabulary. Another one that I like is from Stephen Johnson's book that I favor, I think going back probably now more than 10 years, where good ideas come from. And that's the notion of the adjacent possible. Again, let's not say no to it. Let's say, hmm. What's that adjacency? What are we doing today? And how can we make the adjacency an imminent or future possibility? Mm. So it helps people be more aspirational in their thinking. And you're noticing these are positive words and phrases. And that's important because there can be a bias toward that negative, the quiet quitting and the triggering. So can we try and raise up a little bit? So those are some of the things that I think we do. It's question those norms when you can. Ask yourself, you know, hey, why are we doing it this way? That's all right. And give opportunity for questions. Another one that a person in my network taught me that's very simple, because some of us could just keep working all night, maybe all of us, my desk can sometimes get a little messy. And one of the things that I got myself doing that I didn't like was the messy desk. So just the ritual of closing the laptop of closing the notebook. And I'm a sticky person, rounding up the stickies, putting them in a pile, if not maybe sorting through them at the end of the day. What's that ritual that you can do, especially if you're working in your home to say, work's over and now I'm gonna have that harmonious notion that Jan pointed out, it may never feel balanced, but can I pivot just a bit into my home life? And maybe that's a ritual. So I would offer those as just a couple little things that I think anyone can do. Yeah. And that's a lot. Clearly, we need to get Jen back on to go deeper on many of these things. And then, Jen, as we're getting closer to time, I'd also like to get a little more your perspective on how do you talk to organizations? How do you get people to kind of like break out of their frames. You know, the pandemic was a forcing function for all of us to kind of reevaluate how we work. I think in many ways that wake up call perhaps led to the great resignation, great reshuffle, great awakenings that we're seeing, but change is hard and folks aren't always ready for it. Do you have any thoughts for folks as we're getting closer to conclusion here? How do you muster the energy to really lead and perhaps change your own patterns of behavior? Thoughts on that? Absolutely. So first of all is kind of that basic step of acknowledging. Look what we've been through. This has been a tumultuous time, a time of, you know, change, uncertainty, many things that have gone on. And there's been opportunity for growth. And there's been opportunity for maybe casting aside some of the things in our lives that weren't so meaningful and zeroing in on what matters most. Mm -hmm. So I was just with a group of global leaders and we had met in February 2020. So we were together for a week just before lockdown started happening. We all went back to our corners of the world. And this was our first time back together. So it was in October of this year, 2022. And we did a re-entry strategy, basically. And so we had people get in small groups, buzz groups, and talk about what meaning do they draw from the pandemic? These are leaders of big organizations. And what is the meaning and what is the takeaway for them that they're really trying to process and really kind of have learned through that process? Oh, my gosh, you couldn't have imagined all of the different 
amazing insights, not just about work, although many of them were about work, but about life and the things that they really are pursuing now that might be not the same things they were pursuing prior to all of it. Mm -hmm. There's a concept called post-traumatic growth. We've all heard of post-traumatic stress or mm -hmm. post-traumatic stress disorder, that disorders for a small portion of the population typically. But post-traumatic growth says, what did we learn? We wouldn't wish this period on anyone. We wouldn't wish this trauma on our you know, worst enemy. And yet, I'm a better person. I realized I'm stronger than I thought I was. I realized that my family's more important to me than I had been giving priority to prior to. So those are the lessons that can come forward from that. So that first step is really acknowledging. The other thing I would say that I did, you know, throughout 2020 and 2021 is really celebrating the positive. And so we are in this sea of unknowns. We're in this you know, where we stopped on a dime and had to transition everything in a very short order. And yet people were still turning out product. They were still building relationships. They were still doing all those good things. And so leaders can really just collectively source that. What are the good things that we've been doing and really acknowledge those? It's not to say we don't want the toxic celebrating the good. We don't want ignoring the challenges. But my goodness, we do want people to know they're appreciated and that we see, even in the midst of this, you've come through for us. That's great. It is November. Thanksgiving is coming. And another concept out there is the idea of gratitude and how gratitude is one of these positive psychology concepts that is proving to be hugely beneficial. Also, resilience. As I've heard recently more reframing of trauma in the context of resilience rather than, you know, lamenting learning loss and talking about how our youth are suffering this great trauma. Also just understand the tremendous resilience of youth, not just youth, all of us, the number of people who are citing Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning to Me as, as a book to notice is both reflective of the fact that we've gone through a lot, but also the fact that there is a lot of meaning making, sense making, a lot of the terms that you're describing. In some ways, it's easier when there is a struggle. It's something to be thankful about is the opportunity to really grow from all the challenges we've been facing. Jen, we're going to ask you, I think, to bring us home with some closing thoughts. Thanks again to both of you. Before we do that, if folks are interested in learning more about what you're doing, Jen, is there anywhere they should go to find you? You can go to my LinkedIn page. I typically keep my client relationships undercover just because sure. I'm out there working with lots of different groups, but you could certainly reach me through that. Awesome. Great. And then Jen. Samesies. You can find me on LinkedIn or jenfarthing.com. And really my takeaway and my takeaway from my program, which was so meaningful for me at this stage of my career, the relationships I made, the friendships, the learning, the lifelong learning and growth and what it takes, the things that I took away from that program that I try to imbue in what I do is responsibility. We have to take responsibility for this all of us. It's no one's burden to shoulder alone that leads to isolation. Pragmatism. Guess what? This is what we got. We're going to work with what we've got, not lament what we don't have or what we may have lost to Mike's point. So that's resilience, right? Let's be pragmatic about it. That helps us. And flexibility. 
as I mentioned, give people, give ideas, all about just being a flexible leader is really your secret weapon right now. And I want to wind up with what Jan and Mike have said about gratitude this November and something that I slip into, I think, the end of every meeting, especially when I'm like, I'm one minute over, I got to go. I say, I appreciate you. Mm -hmm. And I kind of sometimes say it just like that. And my husband will say, if I hear that, I appreciate you one more, but like, I can't not say it because it's true. It's it's how I present my duty of care for what we're doing and the people. Because without the people, what are we? We're just us. So build that community. Think about your work-life harmony. Know that you matter at work. There is opportunity for growth. And how we all do this helps us be resilient and lead with a notion of creating safe learning places and spaces so we can flourish and thrive. Outstanding stuff. I feel myself flourishing a little bit, and I do appreciate both of you for joining me on today's show. Jan Stanley and Dr. Jan Farthing, thank you so much for joining us on today's episode. Thank you, Mike. You've been a great host. Thanks, Michael. Awesome. And hopefully our listeners got a lot out of this. You'll see some interesting references within the show notes. We were sharing some good stuff. Hopefully you got a lot out of that. If you like what you heard, please subscribe, tell your friends, do all the good things. We'll be back again soon. This is Trending in Education. 